0: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 417.
1: What we should be doing with our fears isn't fighting through them or pushing them away or standing up to them. We should be doing what we would do with a companion on a long train journey. We should be turning to the fear and asking it lots and lots and lots of questions examining it, not to make it go away, but to go, what's the love in there? Because for you, if you're fearing something, it's because you so love something.
0: You've long been told to do what you love. Sounds simple, but the real challenge is how to do this in a world not set up to help you. Most of us actually don't know the real truth about what we love, what engages us and what makes us thrive. In our workplaces, jobs, schools, even our parents are focused instead on making us conform. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each week, I interview another leadership or professional development author, and we talk about their latest book and their insights on a multitude of topics. Because I believe that if you want true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is, of course, a must. I am delighted to tell you that my guest today is someone I've wanted to interview since this show began. I first became familiar with his work 15 to 20 years ago when I saw him speak at a conference. His name is Marcus Buckingham, and his new book, Out Today, is called Love and Work. How to find what you love, love what you do, and do it for the rest of your life. I'll be asking Marcus to share about how the key to finding what you love might be right under your nose, the you-ness that you were born with, and how it's not caused by your experiences growing up, what a healthy career really looks like, and lots more. Well, I just returned from a fantastic trip in Virginia. That must be where I got this scratchy throat and cold, I'm guessing. <laughs> but I had a chance to get in front of the Virginia Council of CEOs one day and then spoke to the Richmond chapter of the National Speakers Association the next day. And boy, was it fun. I've always been told that the marks of a good talk and training are lots of questions, and I got plenty at both events. And thanks again to Scott McRoberts and Christopher Jones for making it happen. If you'd like to inquire about having me speak at your event or doing some in-person training for your team, you can reach out to me directly. It's jeff at Podcast.com. That's jeff at com. Well, Marcus, it is a delight to have you. I've been wanting to do this a long time. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. I first uh, became familiar with your work. I think it was about 15 years ago. I was attending remotely the Global Leadership Summit, and you were speaking, and that's how I became familiar with Finders and some of your other work. Well, I was reading your book over the weekend, and I come to this phrase that says, uh, one uh, summer in June 1978, and then a little, a little aside where you say I was 12. And I can do that math. I was like, "1978, I was 12 in 1978. We're about the same age. And out of curiosity, I asked the uh, Amazon Echo device uh, next to my reading chair behind me. I don't want to say her name because she'll start talking. Uh, What's the birth date of this author, Marcus Buckingham? And I fell out of my chair... When she told me, because you and I have the exact same birth date. Stop it. Totally serious.
1: You're January the 11th, 1966?
0: Yes, I am. Yes, I am.
1: <laughs> That's auspicious. You're, <laughs> you're a Capricorn. You're uh, with all the confusion and stubbornness that that implies. Uh, That's yes. great. I've actually never met anybody who has the same birthday as I do. So this is a, uh, this is a me first.
0: It's a me first for me, too, and it made me think, gosh, I should ask that question of the device behind me with every guest I interview. Maybe it's, maybe this has happened before, and I'm just not, not aware of it.
1: That's so great. I always kind of like January 11th. I don't know why. I seem to get a lot of joint Christmas and birthday presents. I don't know. Did, did that happen to you, too? Yeah,
0: yeah, I did. Yeah.
1: But I kind of liked it. You start off the year with a, yay, it's your birthday.
0: <laughs> well, uh, to your book, I, I think a lot of us, when it comes to love and work, we think that to find what we love often means going somewhere else to, to find it. And, and you write that that it could be just molding an existing role, uh, something we're already doing to find love within it. Can, can you expound on that a little bit? Well, yeah. We, the cliche about love and work is that you find a job you love and you'll never have to work
1: a day in your life again. It's that mm-hmm. cliche, right? Right. But as a data person, I mean, I'm a psychometrician by training. So I build things like Strength Finder, things like the standard assessment, any, uh, me- measures of engagement. How do you measure things about humans that are really important, but that you can't count? And if you look at the data on love and work, there's actually no data at all that I've seen that shows that the most successful people, the people who are truly thriving as doctors, teachers, lawyers, salespeople, um, love all they do. There is, uh, I mean, that sounds like a great aspiration, but you actually look at the data there's no there's nobody that says that. However, if you look at a study group of highly successful people and a contrast group of less, and you do that again and again and again across multiple studies, you do find that the two questions that really differentiate high-performing from low-performing are, I had a chance to use my strengths every day last week, and I was excited to go to work every day last week, which means that there's something that these highly successful people are doing every day. There's some joy, some love, some passion they're finding in what they do every day, which leads to the conclusion that, The most successful people don't necessarily love all they do, but they do find the love in what they do. They Mm. find activities, moments, situations that seem to lift them up, that seem to um, be those kind of occasions when they vanish into what they're doing. They're invigorated by what they're doing. Very specific things, activities, moments, situations. And it's not that they have to love 100% of those activities. In fact, the threshold number from other research seems to suggest that 20%, if you can find every day 20% of activities that you love in what you do, then you are much more likely to thrive, much more likely to be successful, and all the other positive outcomes that flow from that. So it's not that you have to love all you do, but you you have to be intentional Mm. in finding those aspects that you love in what you do. And that sounds... You know, it, it sounds almost idealistic, except when you actually look at the research, it's pretty clear that the most successful people do do that. Not that every single great teacher finds the same love in what they do, not that every great um, emergency room physician finds the same love in what they do. Everyone's different, even in the same job, everyone's different. But deliberately looking for those activities that can lift you up and finding them every single day. When it comes to love, I guess frequency trumps intensity. So frequency matters. Mm. Um, But if you're doing that every day, you are enabled to move through your life and indeed your working life in a way that nourishes you. No one teaches you how to do this. We absolutely should. We can talk about education later, but that's what the most successful people seem to be able to do. Don't love all you do. That's impossible. Find the love in what you do, and then your days are nourishing.
0: You mentioned teachers. Uh, Some of the most impactful people in my life have been teachers. My my sister is a teacher, fantastic teacher. It's not the caring and well-meaning educators that are the problem when it comes to education. I, I think it's the the kind of the way we're doing it. I don't disagree with you that school has managed to drain love from our lives. It certainly was the case for me. School actually drained the love of reading out of my life, and I had to, thanks to Seth Godin, had that flame relit later as an adult and in books from people like you. How do we address that? How do we fix that? Can we fix that? What are the, the things that school particularly and, and work too is doing to drive these things out of
1: what we've got right now is a situation where basically the feelings that you had from zero to five, that your parents saw in you from zero to five, that you're unique, that you were born distinct and different from even your, your brother or your sister or your closest relatives that you might've grown up in the same house with. You're different and nature and um, uh, biology loves variety and you're born with what turns out to be more synaptic connections in your brain then there are stars in 5,000 Milky Ways. You have an unbelievably filigreed and complex and precise network of synaptic connections in your brain, which leads you to love some things. I love confronting others. Over here, I'm impatient with the fact that somebody uh, doesn't walk fast enough on a street. <laughs> I'm I love standing up in front of a group of people and trying to persuade them to do what they didn't intend to do. All those things are very specific to me. You may hate all of those things, nothing to do with our gender or our race or our exact same age or anything like that. (laughs) But the very things that invigorate you might frustrate me. And the same is true for my brother or my sister and your parents or our parents, your parents. They knew that so early. But at five, all the really interesting and unique things that your parents were beginning to sort of pick up on and be intrigued about you get to school and school frankly is set up where all learning is outside in it's not inside out mm-hmm. almost all learning is information transfer and confirmation to through standardized testing so we will teach you by informing you of stuff and then we will test you to see how much of that stuff you've retained. And the best student is the fullest one, the one with the best test scores. And that goes on all the way through high school up into college where who you are as an individual and how you can channel and contribute who you are as an individual is irrelevant. Actually, it's not just irrelevant. It's an Mm. impediment Mm. to you getting the standardized test scores that enable a college to maintain its brand. Now, what's interesting about all of that is that actually workplaces would want you to graduate into them knowing very clearly where you are at your best not where you're the best that's a whole different question but where you are mm. at your best where you can contribute the most they would want you to be able to join teams and actually be able to articulate hey this is where you can turn to me the most this is where i really light up this is where my brain works fastest and the flip of that this is where i'm going to need help over here mm. or this is where i'm a bit like a deer in the headlights if uh, workplaces need anything at all they need people who are have self mastery at teaming Unfortunately, and actually you're beginning to see signs of this, where the workplaces are beginning to be super frustrated with colleges and schools. Sadly for the workplaces, they're not getting those kinds of graduates. We have 10 years of geometry and zero years on you as an individual. So, where it begins, I think, is parents, workplaces, and students have to come together as a coalition and go, we need some self-mastery courses. We need the schools to be inquisitive, at least inquisitive, about the uniqueness of each child. Not to be narcissistic, not to be self-involved, but so that that child can make a contribution. That's a very simple thing to ask. By the way, it turns out, because we've done a whole bunch of research on this, students as young as nine or 10 years old can be taught how to use a regular day at school to begin to identify that which they love Hmm. and to begin to write down that which they love and to begin to then see each other through the lens of that which they love and that which the other person. I mean, you can actually teach kids without much of a budgetary increase at all on skills like that. If we were to do that, the kids would be better served. They wouldn't be on Adderall as much. They wouldn't have as much Xanax to take the edge off the Adderall. But also the workplaces would be served because we'd have more self-reliant, more self-mastery in our, in our workplaces. And that's a good thing.
0: Now, this is something you refer to in the book as your weird Right, well, W-Y-R-D, this, this noun, you, this you that you're born with, you're saying it's, if I'm understanding correctly, it's not caused by our experiences growing up. These are synapses that we're born with. I mean, that's a revelation for a lot of people, is it not?
1: Yes. The idea that, who are you? I and mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Who are you? And you have a lot of different sources of your identity. It might be your gender. It might be your religion. It might be your nationality. It might be which team <laughs> you happen to support. But obviously, in all those other categories there, there's lots of other people who share your gender or your race or your nationality. You, the unique pattern of behaviors, thoughts, feelings, interactions of you are caused, well, we know actually what they're caused by because of these global... Identical twins reared apart studies. We know mm-hmm. that your personality, who you are, what you lean into, what you find exciting, what you find distressing, all those things about you that make you, you, we know they're caused by two things. One is the genes of your parents, not your upbringing, your mm-hmm. parental upbringing, despite everything that psychology tries to put on you about parental trauma and the way in which you were raised causing this or that uh, anomaly. Your parents genes, if you're, if you're shy, it's because your parents were shy not because they raised you to be shy. We know that because of these identical twins raised by uh, adopted families and whether or not those personalities remain consistent. So mm. firstly, it's your, it's your 50% is your genes, and about 30% is your, is your peers between the ages of zero to 12, and the remaining 20% is, is chance. Mm. So your, your uniqueness, um, which we can see manifested in these, well, it's trillions of synaptic connections in your brain, is utterly unique to you it's caused by the uniqueness the unique inheritance that you were given when you were when you were born and the growth of you over the course of your life isn't you rewiring this empty vessel into whatever you want it to be despite how we couch that in positive language like well you should have a growth mindset um (laughs) and not that i don't admire carol dweck's work but Mm. If you're not careful, growth mindset simply means there's no you in there. There's no weird. Uh, weird meaning the, the Norse term for a unique spirit or a unique daimon or a unique uh, character that is you, that is the only you there is or will ever be, which, by the way, biologically, that is the truth. There will never be someone who has the same synaptic connection network as you do, ever. And and school doesn't address that. Parents actually don't have a language for that. What we should be doing is helping you learn why does Serena Williams play tennis so differently from venus williams not necessarily about richard williams their dad and how he created them he didn't he couldn't have created serena playing differently from venus if he tried they're so different why are they different why was neil armstrong so different from his brother dean armstrong who was a bank manager (laughs) <laughs> why, why does George Clooney, who often points to his aunt Rosemary Clooney as his inspiration to be an actor, but why did he have a sister called Ada who had the same aunt, Rosemary Clooney, who became an accountant specializing in payroll? <laughs> we need a language to talk about individual differences and uniqueness mm. inside the same family. What's weird, Jeff, is there's no No one teaches us about any of this. Instead, we're given these rather vague homilies of you can be anything you want to be if you have a growth mindset. And it's like, no, you are (laughs) utterly unique. And Mm. when you grow, by the way, the brain science on this is really clear. You grow more synaptic connections in the parts of your brain where you have the most pre-existing synapses. That means, yes, you grow, but you grow into a more defined, hopefully more contributive version of you. George Clooney doesn't grow into ADA or vice versa, no matter how much of a growth mindset you have. So the fundamental question of who the heck are you Mm. and how do you contribute it? We give our 15-year-olds nothing on this. We give our seven-year-olds nothing on this. And at work, we give our 27-year-olds nothing on this. And as a result, we have engagement levels in the mid-teens, resilience levels in the mid-teens, and drug and alcohol abuse at work at sky-high levels. We've (laughs) <laughs> we've completely <laughs> missed the uniqueness of individuals as the starting point for any kind of
0: learning or any kind of productivity at work. Yeah, I could, I could listen to this all day. I really could. I'm fascinated by your research and what you've discovered here. We're sort of dancing around this idea of red threads. There's, there's a questionnaire from the book, when was the last time? And then several questions. How can we both discover and utilize these red threads to to explore the path for us in, in work and in life.
1: What's beautiful about this, Jeff, is like it's very, all very well for me to say to someone like you've got a weird inside you. There is a uniqueness mm. inside of you, and it's really, really, really complicated. And no one will ever be quite you again ever. But then that's kind of intimidating. So the person's like, "Well, I can't see that because I'm just inside of me. I'm just walking around, <laughs> breathing." You know. Well, it turns out that life's given you these great clues. To who you are what you love your loves are the best clues possible to decode yourself and there are three or four clues to what your loves are i actually call them as you said i call them red threads in the book because if you think about it a day is a bit like a it's a bit like a tapestry from far away the tapestry looks like just one one image just like a day just looks like a monday But if you get close to the tapestry, you find it's made up of many, many thousands of individual threads. Same is true for a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. It's not just a day. It's made up of thousands of different stimuli that hit you or hit me thousands of different moments, interactions with a person, consequences of that interaction, a task, an activity. Thousands of them hit you and they're like threads. They're threads of a day. Some of them are black, white, gray, brown, yellow. They lift you up a little, they bring you down a little, they fly by. But some of them are red. Some threads in your day are red, which means that before you do them, you are finding yourself positively anticipating them while you're doing them you find the time flies by you you're sort of in the zone you vanish into the activity it's almost like you're not doing the activity you are the activity when you're done with them you felt mastery at it you felt you weren't drained you felt actually more you you felt like it just clicks almost like you know how to do it from a previous life or something you're just in your zone So three really obvious clues to your red threads. And so in the book, you know, it's one of those things where you go, gosh, I wish we'd have taught every single seven-year-old this. But there's like 10 questions here. When was the last time a day flew by? Or when was the last time you instinctively volunteered for something? When was the last time you noticed something others didn't? When was the last time that you had to be like pulled away from doing something? There's very specific questions you can ask yourself to identify what your red threads are. And of course, if you want to have a more successful, more fulfilling life, you don't have to look up at 30,000 feet and find your purpose. <laughs> you have to look at five feet and go, today, it's a Monday. I know I could wake up and think of all the to-do things I'm supposed to get done today and try to survive the day and get through the day. But maybe it'd be better if you woke up every morning and went, okay, yes, there's some stuff to do, but what are the red threads I could find and weave today? I, I, I don't need a fully red tapestry. red threads, apparently, seems to be a threshold number. You get 20% red threads every day, you have a totally different life. And it's right there in front. I mean, no one's taught you how to do this because no one's bothered. Even in the world of positive psychology, no one really dives into the specificity of your red threads, But, but they're there. And so if you could wake up every morning and intentionally go, what red threads could I find and weave today? Yes, you might be in the wrong job. Okay. But 73% of us say we have the freedom to modify our job to fit ourselves better. So you could even start, even if at some point you might think I've got to find a different job. Okay, that's fine. But you have to start from where you're at. And the best way to discover who you are is to pay attention to where you're at and which are the particular red threads in your work right now, or indeed in your life at home right now, that seem to invigorate you, that have those three very clear signs, volunteering before you do it, time flying by while you're doing it, and then a feeling of mastery after you've done it. Those are there
0: if you would but look. I'm in the middle of one of my red threads right now. I'm interviewing you. I'm interviewing Marcus Buckingham. This is awesome.
1: <laughs> well, I have the same thing, funnily enough. It's like, you know, you don't necessarily know all of your red threads right at the outset. You keep experimenting. And that's why I say in the, in the book that a career is a scavenger hunt for love. You're scavenging. It's not a career ladder. It's not a lattice. It's not a jungle mm-hmm. gym. You are scavenging around looking for red threads. You know, I'm loving this. I, I think you're loving this. And that's, that's specific to us. There might be some people who would hate doing what we're doing. Um, And yet that individuality that each of us has is expressed through very specific acts, a very five foot level. Oh, that 20 minutes there was a totally different 20 minutes than the 40 minutes afterwards. Okay. What's that? And how can I make sure that I pay attention to that 20 minutes? That's why in the book, I'm like, here's how to write a love note. I mean, write yourself three love notes that are like, I love it when... Mm. And then finish the sentence. Just write three of them. I love it when what has to come after the word when is a verb that you're doing, not Mm. that someone else is doing. I love it when I'm praised. No, 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 I love it when I'm talking to Jeff about Mm. stuff that relates to like it's very specific. Mm. Try writing. That's why I said the people who read the book, like try writing three love notes. It's an incredibly interesting, super specific activity where you're the only genius. You know your red threads better than anyone else. Start there. Mm.
0: As I mentioned, I got a chance to hear you speak all those years ago. I never would have guessed as a young boy, that 12-year-old boy in 1978 dealt with a stammer. I never would have thought that that was the case. But I love the story you tell in the book. And I would love for you to share a bit of it here of how you discovered one of your red threads when you had to get up in front of your class.
1: Well, yes. Yeah, so between the ages of zero and 12, I couldn't speak. I don't know why I couldn't speak, but. One of the idiosyncratic synaptic connections in my brain that related to fluency didn't work. It spasmed, or they all spasmed. <laughs> I'm sure there wasn't just one. But they all spasmed when I tried to speak, which manifested for me in a really crippling stammer. And it really defined, Jeff, my, my first 12 years of my life. I didn't, there wasn't a single day when I didn't wake up and feel the uh, anxiety and the and the fear of even saying my own name, I and mean, Marcus Buckingham, as I say in the book, M- Marcus Buckingham for a stutterer, is a freakishly long name. um and that kind of in our society today, when you have a problem, whether it's stammering or whether it's social anxiety or whether it's depression, we we tend to want to go and make you an expert in your trauma that may have caused the stutter. so so I learned a lot about the causes of stuttering and stammering, and you become sort of super expert in all the different manifestations of this weird, devilish sort of affliction. But funnily enough, red threads, those particular moments or activities that that really, for no good reason other than the uniqueness of you, just lift you up and, and, and time flies by, you feel most of you, they're not just useful in terms of thriving, they're useful in solving your biggest problems. So, for me, that, the explanation around that is, I don't know why this even happened, but the headmaster of my school asked me to read aloud. Well, he actually asked five 12-year-olds to read aloud in chapel, and I was one of them, which struck me even at the time as a joke because I couldn't speak. So my entire school life was ruined in my head anyway at that moment because there's no way you can get around you can sort of hide that you can't speak by not speaking in class or not speaking on the schoolyard but if you have to stand up and read aloud in chapel there's no escaping that but anyway to cut the longer story short i got up i went to the lectern turned around and for whatever reason the the sight of 400 people staring at me the stimuli of that turned out to be something that unlocked the synapses that were were misfiring and my disfluency went away. I don't even, it wasn't that I worked at it or fixed it or strived at it or something worked on me. I saw all these faces and it was, I could feel it almost physiologically different in my head. I could feel the synapses firing differently. It felt warm. It was the strangest thing. And I realized at that very young age, I didn't call it this, but I realized I f- I love it when I'm speaking to a large group of people on a subject that I know the words for, because in this case, I was reading it. Um, <laughs> but I love that. I love it when I'm speaking to a large group of people on a subject that I know a lot about, in this case, that I'm reading. Well, that for me, A, was a massive discovery because no one would ever have been able to tell me that. Mm. But B, I then took that one red thread and applied it to every single conversation, which meant that from that moment on, on the schoolyard, I just pretended... I was talking to 400 people when I was talking to one. And it is no exaggeration to say the stammer went away in a week. So much so that, and it does still come back. I mean, it's still there. I can still feel it kind of coiling and uncoiling in my head sometimes when I'm tired or super stressed. But I went to another school. No one knew I had a stammer from 13 on. And when I went to college, no one knew I had one. And that's the power of love. Sorry to say it that way, but that's the power <laughs> of finding that which you love. It cures you. It doesn't just help you thrive, it helps you become the integrating point for any kind of therapeutic intervention you may want to do with yourself. Um, so, for example, if someone has social anxiety, the question is, well, what's causing it? And, and let's dive into it. And was it a function of the way you were up, brought up? And was it, let's help you be expert in your anxiety? No, let's help you find those moments when you have none. Are there any? Mm. when is the only moment you can even think about in the last two months when you felt at ease in a social situation? What was, what are the specifics of it? Where were you? Who were you talking to? What were you talking about? How tired were you? Let's get into the detail of it because there in that one moment where there was a red thread around a social situation, that's the integrating point for your learning. Mm. So that's, that was the stammer manifestation for me. Everyone will have their own unique versions of that of course.
0: An amazing story be curious to get your take on, on this. Um, I used to be someone in high school and in college and in, in the beginnings of my work life that I dreaded any form of public speaking, getting up in front of a room full of people and having to speak was great one-on-one, the opposite of you. But there was a point in my career where I realized that That skill was something I was going to need to cultivate and and learn and get comfortable with and eventually did. And it's now become, I just got back from a speaking gig in Virginia, speaking to a room full of CEOs, stood in front of the National Speakers Association of Richmond, not intimidating at all, (laughs) even though it sounds like it might be a room full of other speakers, professional speakers. But I had to learn, I felt, to get over that, to get better at that and built myself a curriculum and broke public speaking down into subcategories and read about them and practice what I learned and all of that. And I've gone from hating it, detesting it, <laughs> fearful of it, to absolutely loving it. What would you say was going on there? That that transformation's very, very different than what you just described.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously in terms of people's lives, we have to we have values, the things that are important to us. Mm. And the best goals, of course, are goals that come out of your values. They're not goals imposed on you from above. We don't necessarily need a smart goal or um, a, a, a you know key results areas goal or a MBO goal. We just need goals that are set by ourselves. Any goal that's not set by you is an ungoal. So if you, for yourself, whatever caused you to go, I want to be better at public speaking, whatever caused that, that came out of a value that you have. It feels, I'm sure to you or felt at the time, super authentic to you. Mm-hmm. Um, challenging because you couldn't figure out how to do it, but it was a manifestation of a goal. Well, in terms of the this love and work approach, what if I was coaching you back then, mm-hmm. <laughs> first of all, I would go on, why is that a manifestation of a goal of yours? It's not that you're mm-hmm. just sort of blindly trying to get good at all sorts of things you find right. bad or it's <laughs> challenging. You've right. said to yourself, I, Oh, I want something and public speaking is a way to get that. So it became important to you. Right. So that was the, yeah. the first thing you did. But the second thing would be like, okay, w- what are the moments that you, so there's two, there's two things that you got to think about. One is what for you are the moments where you have found your authenticity in front of people. Was it two people? Was it three people? When did that last happen? What were you doing? What were you talking about? What was the context? Have you ever had a time when people said, that was, wow, you know, that one of the great signs of a red thread is other people going, whoa, and you were sort of singled out for something, for praise, mm. for some part of that. Was there any part yeah. of that? And so let's dive into that so that mm. we can see who you are as any kind of speaker. And then secondly, how do you best learn? What is your red thread for mastery? Is it breaking it down into steps, reading all about it, putting it into a sequence and then practice that sequence, which for you, by the way, might sound like, well, how else would anyone learn anything? <laughs> There's a jamillion different ways to learn. So for yes. you, as you just said, you went, I like, read all about it. I'm a competent in my own head. So I need to figure out what the steps are for this section, this section, this section. I practice each section. And what I find is gradually my sense of mastery for this sequence grows. Then the persona I'm stepping into, in a sense, is a persona of mastery because mm-hmm. I've, I've found my own way of learning this particular skill that I want to learn. Mm-hmm. So that's what you've done there. You've said this is a particular skill that needs addressing because it'll help me get my goals. And then what is it about me that's most me? around this, because mm. by the way, as you've probably seen, there's no worse a speaker than someone who thinks they've learned the steps, but they don't know who they are in it. They don't know uh-huh. who they are for people. When you stand up in front of people, like you and I went to the GLS way, whenever it was you know, mm. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there are some speakers on those stages who are so different in mm. terms of how they do it, but they're all incredible because they stand so strongly inside their own skin. You've obviously done that in your way. You figured out those moments when you are most you, then you've figured out how you learn and you've applied those two things together to create something, some new competency for yourself. That's how we should all do it. There are no six steps to public speaking. There aren't. There are a million different ways of public speaking effectively, just as there are a million speakers. You have to find yours, which obviously you did, independent of any help from someone like me.
0: <laughs> well, there's been a couple of times I've been invited on stages where I was like, is this an accident? Was Did they mean to invite me? I'm not sure. I'm an expert in that. And I dealt with, at the time, what I thought was imposter syndrome and all those fears of public speaking came back. But I think maybe it was more of, I just, I, I recognize that as me not being able to step into me, as you were saying, as much as it was about imposter syndrome. I don't know.
1: Well, it's funny. It's We talk a lot about fear in the book, right? Because fear, Mm. we're told that we should fight fear, um, that um, fear is the opposite of love, um, that we should strive for a life without fear, break through the fear. Mm. And yet, as you've just described, living a life without fear is not a human life. We all have fear. Fear is really important from an evolutionary standpoint. Mm. That particular psychological construct we call fear, which manifests in the brain as sort of flight or fight, you know, serotonin and um, cortisol, flooding, Mm. adrenaline. That's a human thing. But the advice to fight fear or push through it is misleading. Fear Mm. is actually one of, I shared three other signs of love, but fears are a really good one too. Fear often, when you feel that fear, it's a messenger of that which you love. Mm. Where there's no fear, there's no love. So what we should be doing with fears are fears is isn't fighting through them or pushing them away or standing up to them. We should be doing what we would do with a companion on a long train journey. We should be turning to the fear and asking it lots and lots and lots of questions, examining it, not to make it go away, but to go, what's the love in there? Because for you, if you're fearing something, it's because you so love something that it's making you It's bringing fear with it because you so yearn for What's the thing you're so yearning for? If we really examine um, your fears, they reveal beautiful things about that which you love. Fear only gets really problematic when you shun it. So, if you push it away, like if you fear your partner is cheating on you, fear turns into possessiveness, and it's the possessiveness that kills the relationship. Or if you fear that new job that you might take and fail at because of imposter syndrome, then fear shows up as um, stagnant, uh, uh, overly cautious work, which prevents you from moving forward. And that's what kills your career. So, fear shunned metastasizes into really bad things. Fear examined is like, well, wait a minute. Why did you get imposter syndrome in that moment? Oh, because you actually, so in this case, you probably so want to convey something that you know in your heart you have to share, and you so want to share it in a way that's compelling. Well, that shows up as fear because you might not do it, and you might think that they might. Th- so it, it shows up in all sorts of ways, <laughs> but the fear itself is really worth examining because it reveals that which you love. And then all of a sudden you have power, which I'm sure you did. You suddenly step into your power and you go, you know what this is? This is just me so yearning to be me for these people. Okay, well, what's that? Who am I? Because I'm the only me there is. So if they got someone else, fine, go get someone else. But they got me. Mm. So what yeah. is, so that fear... Sorry to go on about this, because it, but it's so so powerful that fear le- led you, I imagine, to be the most authentic, most powerful, most distinctive version of you for them. Okay, that's cool.
0: And it's taught me, too, to be more that in future presentations. Um, even when I feel like an expert on whatever the topic happens to be, I can, I can channel that uh, for the future.
1: Which is why you should listen to people's reactions of you, but not their feedback. Super important distinction between reactions and feedback. Feedback is pernicious. Everyone says we should learn how to give it and receive it. No, we shouldn't. Most feedback simply is somebody else telling you that you would be better at being you if only you were more like them. But of course, that's not how that's not how learning happens. Learning isn't them pouring their wisdom into you. Hey, look, here's what you should do to be better because you have blind spots and I see them. No, this person doesn't see them. This person is as blind as you are. What they do have, though, like ignore the feedback. They do have a reaction. So if you're giving a presentation, right, and you find that somebody comes up to you afterwards and says, I got lost by that part of it. okay, that's a reaction. You can't say, well, you didn't get lost. Cause they did get lost <laughs> mm. or if they came up to you and they went, you know what, that ending where you, I don't, I just couldn't, I wish you'd have kept going with that. Cause it was so great. Mm. It, which sounds like praise, but really it's a reaction. And what you should mm. be doing is I, I should be doing going, what was it about that? If you don't mind my asking, like, which, Which thing kind of grabbed you? And and that's not you fishing for praise. That's you going, "Mm, that reaction clues me in to who am I for people when I'm at my best? Okay. That's just you using their reaction to help you learn who you are for people. The problems come when people try to cross the feedback bridge and start telling you how to be a better version of you, which Mm -hmm. other people simply cannot do so Mm. one thing in the book we talk a lot about is is the is the the devilish nature of feedback it seems so jolly good but deep down it's smothering but people's reactions ah that's fascinating because it does lead you to go and it's a very interesting question to go who am i for people and and even now if you and i was just sitting around having coffee i would keep saying that if you were asking me career advice I would keep saying that to you. Do you really know who you are for people distinctively from any other voice out there? And anytime that weird imposter syndrome sort of pops up, you can stop and go, wait a minute. No one can be an imposter of me because I'm the only me there is. So the question isn't imposter Mm. or no imposter. The question is, do I know? Who I am for people. Yeah, you get into that. That's a really interesting... You'll never be a perfect version of yourself, but you'll be the most um, powerful version of yourself when you are super curious about who that is and what that is. And, and that, I think, is, is how, gosh, it'd be such a powerful thing, wouldn't it be, to teach an 11-year-old about that? Because all mm. the way through your teenage years, all on up, you've got imposter syndrome screaming at you left, right, and center. Mm.
0: You and I want to pull out something you said. It's, it's important to understand that these fears, they're not supposed to go away. We think we're supposed to conquer them. Uh, the butterflies are still there. We just, through your work, we can find a way to get them to fly in formation, maybe as a way to think about it. Yeah, that's a lovely image. Not unique to me. I'm stealing that from somebody else, and I wish I could tell you the name. Another thing I want to steal is is fear minus death equals fun, <laughs> because I think that if death isn't the worst that can happen, oftentimes when you lean into that fear, there's fun on the other side, right? Well,
1: yeah, and it's actually that if you find, we're, we're often told, uh, step out of your comfort zone, but actually, there's an awful lot of things that are really uncomfortable that you should never do, that make you look weird and <laughs> wrong and are you're totally legit for going, I don't want to do that. That doesn't, ah, that doesn't feel like me at all. The choice in life isn't comfort or no comfort. It's love or no love. You have one cup. You're trying to Mm. fill it with love, whether it's from the domain of your personal life, the domain of your hobbies, Mm. the domain of your faith, the domain of your work. You're trying to fill this cup with activities, moments, people, situations that you love. The path of fear is also the path of love. Mm. So, It's not comfort or no comfort. It's like if you're doing something and there's no fear, then you've lost what you love. Because anything that has love in it has twinges of fear in it. Because you are so passionate about it, because you're so in it, because you're invested. It's like you're going to take it personally when you're doing things that you love. And that's great. People always say, well, I'll take it personally. No, I mean, you <laughs> should take it personally, not in a way that stagnates you and stops you. But if you are doing something and you've lost all fear, then you've lost all love and all the good things that come with that. We know that when you're doing something that you love, the chemical cocktail in your brain, it's a wonderful cocktail of vasopressin and oxytocin and anandamide and norepinephrine. And it, it looks very much like, by the way, the chemical cocktail in your brain when you're actually in love with someone. But we know that when that chemical cocktail is f- sort of flowing through your brain, your cognitive f- functions perform better. You are more accurate in picking up the emotions of others. You are more resilient. You are more forgiving. All sorts of really good outcomes happen for you when your brain is like that. So mm-hmm. if you are living a life with no fear, then you're living a life with no love. And if you're living a life with no love, then you are under leveraging yourself. You're, you're a less a lesser (laughs) version, Mm. a more brittle, more fragile Mm. version of yourself. Fear isn't the enemy. Fear is a messenger. It's like pain for the psyche. It helps Mm. you know where to focus.
0: I love that. I love that. Let's turn to work for a second in the time we have left. What do great work relationships look like when your coworkers are cued into some of your your loves?
1: Well, obviously, first of all, um, all work is teamwork. I mean, we know that from data, uh, where north of 80% of people said they do most of their work on teams. We also know that from archaeology, the oldest painting that humans have ever found is a painting of a team in an island, uh, Sulawesi, uh, in Indonesia. It's it's 50,000 years old, and it's a picture of a team. It's the oldest painting we've ever found. Humans are really good at working together. And in fact, contrary to what we say about teams, where we say there's no I in team, the point of a team is to show you that I'm not, you're not that important or you're not as <laughs> important as the team. We mm. actually designed teams originally 50,000 years ago to make use of the fact that we're all so different. And the mm. team was this cutting-edge technology at the time to pull <laughs> together different people's weird, right? different people's uniqueness. Mm. Teams make homes for weirdness. So that's the first thing we should all know. At work, we are working on teams And teams aren't about homogeneity. They're not filled with well-rounded people. The team's well-rounded precisely because each individual on it isn't. And so what you're looking at in the relationships you have with teams, frankly, is awareness. You want to be able to join a team and say, here's what you can rely on me for. Here's what I love people to turn to me for. Here's where I'm at my best. Hmm. And then over here are some of my non-red threads. Here's where I really will need your help. Here's where I'm going to need your collaboration. Here's where I might need your patience. Those are the kind of relationships on the best teams where people aren't bragging. They're not saying I'm the best at, but they're sharing, I am my strongest when I'm doing these things, just FYI, and I don't need to be doing 100% of them. But I want you to know my primary contribution to this team is going to be weaving these threads. And over here, I'm going to need your help with some of yours. When we've got relationships like that at work, we do extraordinary things where my awareness of what you're aware of, about what I'm aware of, if you follow that, um, (laughs) leads to trust and it leads to collaboration. It leads to innovation. All the good things we want come about when you have teaming
0: like that. Hmm. What do you say to the phrase uh, work-life balance? What's your take on that?
1: Well, it's a really weird phrase because, um, first of all, balance. I mean, if you, t- if you say to someone, you've got to get work-life balance, number one, we know balance is almost impossible to find. It's that one tiny moment when everything is sort of perfectly in balance. So first of all, you're setting someone up to fail. But second, balance is a stagnant state. If you ever found that moment where everything was perfectly Your family, your work, your grandparents, your kids, your community. If it was all perfect, like 3 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon, you'd run around to everyone going, nobody move. I got it. It's just, I got it. Got it. (laughs) In fact, when you then look around at nature, you realize that nothing healthy in nature is balanced. Mm. Everything healthy in nature is moving. Mm. So, So for us, the same is true. We have to move through our life and derive nourishment, psychological nourishment, from the aspects of our life as we're moving through it so that we can keep moving through it. So the aspiration shouldn't be balance. Balance is stagnation. Balance is stasis. Everything in the world that's healthy is moving and is nourished by its moving. So for you, the question is, you're moving. I don't care how comfortable your bed is, as Grace Slick said, sooner or later, you're going to have to get out of it. So tomorrow... It's Tuesday. What are you doing? You're gonna have to get out and keep moving. You're gonna have to get out and keep moving. So the question for you as a mother isn't try to balance out being a mother with being a worker. It's which aspects of mothering seem to nourish you, which aspects of mothering are a red thread for you, which aspects of work are a red thread of you, which aspects of hobbies, by the way. Some red threads don't lead to outstanding performance. You love them, but you can never get good enough at them to have someone pay you for them. Okay, that's called Mm -hmm. a hobby. And hobbies are love-giving things. They bring more love into your life. That's a good thing. So the real challenge for us is how do you move through a week? Let's not go with a month. Let's not go with a year. Let's not go with a broader season. How do you move through a week and derive enough nourishment from that Monday, that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so that you can feel psychologically full at the end of the week, as opposed to drained. Our challenge in life, Jeff, isn't that we don't have enough time. It's that we don't have enough Mm. energy. And so if we taught people, it's like your life, every morning, it's trying to put on a show for you. Every morning, I know we don't think about life this way, but every morning it's waking up going, I'm going to show you thousands of threads today. Thousands of moments and situations and contexts and so on. And, and I'm going to see which ones I've read of yours. Every morning it's going da, 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 like it's going to put on a show. That means the striving shouldn't be for balance. The striving should be can you find in that show, can you find that which you love and attend to it? That's, that's where you'd start. Just if you ignore it, it withers. So attend to it. And then can you figure out how to weave it into contribution? Then, can you mold your job so you get to do more of it? Then, to your point with public speaking, can you learn a particular competency so that you amplify it? Then, maybe even Mm. people will start paying you to do it, like with you. Then, maybe people will actually change your job description so that it actually leverages that to the nth degree. Like Your loves become your guide for creating a world in which, both at work and at home, you're deriving energy in a way that only you can. Okay, that's so cool not least because it means that if you're taking yourself seriously, if you're being curious about that which you love for yourself, and it's as mysterious and deep and rich as it is, then so must other people's loves be. And out will go these weird generalizations about other people who who are maybe of a different gender or race or nationality or religion than us. Out will go those broad categories of tribalistic generalization, and in will come curiosity about that unique person because if you're as weird and wonderful, unique as you obviously are, <laughs> then so must they be. Mm. And and boy, that's a whole different aspiration to start changing our lens to go, wow, if I respect and I'm curious about my loves, then I, I'm pretty quickly going to turn around and apply that same lens to these weird and wonderful people out there in the world who are not me.
0: In the time we have left, Marcus, I want to try to squeeze in two questions, one of which is, what have I not asked about from the book that you wished I did ask about? Anything?
1: Um, I think we haven't really talked about parenting. That's one of the things that I write about a bit in the book. I had, I mean, it's a very personal book, this book for me, because I lost my dad. I got divorced. My whole family got involved in some sort of national scandal. We had the pandemic. um, And so it caused me to think, what do I want to share before I die, basically? And Mm. obviously, parents don't create the personality of their kids. But boy, with the best of intentions, some parents do some really dangerous things to their kids some of which are totally immoral in terms of the choices they make for their kids even if they're trying to elevate their kids they're intervening too much they're lifting up too much they're protecting too much so what we haven't talked about is how do you create the kind of because parenting really is space making you're trying to create enough space to allow the kid to make choices and when you see your kid making choices you start seeing your kid and if you have no choices for the kid, if you're—I call them Pac-Man parents—if you're like a Pac-Man parent, turning the or yanking the joystick up and down and moving the little creature, but you know, escaping all the ghosts who are coming—if that's what parenting is to get to the next level and the next level—and you're the parent yanking on the joystick, then you don't see your kid, and you can't love what you can't see. We we've defined parenting by outcomes, which frankly are reflecting on the parent. We have got to think differently about the point of parenting is to allow yourself to see the child. And yes, school, sorry, we can blame school all we want, but you need to put your own oxygen mask on first as a parent. You knew when your kid was born that they were unique almost from the get-go. Mm. And they can grow, to your point about public speaking, there are ways in which they can acquire different competencies, but they'll acquire them uniquely for unique reasons. And you saw that at two. So as parents, Mm. we we have to be more intelligent spacemakers because you can't love what you can't see. And if you're not letting your kid make those choices, you won't see the kid. And when you're not seen at home, that causes all sorts of underlying pathologies when you go to work or in other future adult relationships the child may have
0: i'm actually going to stop there because we can't top that that was fantastic uh and i'm so glad you you chose to address that and include that because i think we needed to hear that today marcus my not just my brother from another mother my twin brother from another mother because we were born on the same exact day thank you for this book and thank you for your time today i so appreciate it
1: well i really really enjoyed it jeff and uh from one Capricorn to another, yes, this was a this was a red thread for me, too. It was a great, great start to, uh, to this day. So thank you.
0: As I said earlier, I loved having the chance to hear Marcus speak all those years ago. I think now you know why. You'll find a summary of this episode and links to connect with Marcus on my website, plus a link to his book and to my book, it's all at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 417 for episode 417. Well, it only gets better in the coming weeks as we welcome folks like Whitney Johnson, Jordan Rayner, Mark Miller, Brian Moran with Michael Lennington, Joe Saul C, and next week, Stephen M. R. Covey. We'll be digging into his new book also out today called Trust and Inspire. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I hope you'll be here next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead.